You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to be joined again by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Ben Morrow, former Rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So usually on this show, we talk about things relating to the soul without specifically focusing on what soul means. And, And I was wondering, as someone who's moved from Orthodox Judaism to a form of humanistic Judaism and other things in between, all through a process of what you wonderfully called agnosticism last time you were here on the show. I'm wondering, what does soul mean to you? And I guess following on from that eventually is, since this show is soul searching, what does soul searching mean to you? So let, let's start at the beginning. What, what is soul to you? Well, it's a very complicated and complex short word. Soul to me deals with the anti-beginning. Uh, And I have to explain this. Mm. If you think in terms of the creative act that forms us, all of us, including the world, Mm -hmm. and the six-day story, Mm -hmm. or whatever story one happens to accept as part of their culture and their heritage, you think of the beginning. But hardly ever do we think of what if everything always was. Mm -hmm. And if everything always was, the ingredients for everything must have always been. Mm -hmm. And these ingredients may form, may take different forms during different times. Mm -hmm. But eventually, the potential for anything and everything always is there. Right. So you mix up the atoms a little bit every once in a while, and you come up with something else. Right. But the atoms were there, are there, and will be there. Mm-hmm. So soul, to me, is that part of the mixture that is not yet known to Homo sapiens. sapiens. Right. That's fascinating on, on so many ways. I guess partly because when I think of the Genesis story, you refer to the, the six-day story. When, when we look at the Genesis story, very often we translate it with a very modern lens in terms of reading back something like the Big Bang into it. We, when we will translate it as something like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the heavens were unformed and void. But um, as I'm sure you well know, um, Rashi, the medieval biblical commentator, noticed the Hebrew is bereshit, not bareshit. When? Right. So in the construct form. So when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was already unformed and void, which suggests not creation ex nihilo, but actually something that always was. And that would certainly accord with a lot of the other faith traditions around at the time, which also didn't believe everything popped out of nothing, but actually was was always there and was always eternal. So then I guess this gets me to ask, 
when you say the soul is the the part that we haven't um, yet understood, I mean, go into more of it because that's fascinating for me. You're saying that soul is something that we could eventually calculate or understand? No. You don't have to understand everything that is created at the time that it was created or maybe for sometimes um, afterwards. Uh, I'm reminded, um, or let me remind you, of Pythagoras's many mathematical problems that he created that he could not answer. Right. And one of them, of course, is Fermat's Enigma, which maybe we can get, maybe. get into <laughs> and maybe not. But so what but, you're saying is then, am I right? You're saying that that soul is that which we will never understand? Yes. We may never even, more than that, it's something that we can't even imagine, that our awareness is not prepared to, to be uh, knowledgeable right. of all the ingredients necessary to put it together. So then how can we talk meaningfully about soul at all then? We can't. We can't talk meaningfully about it. What we can do is work up to the edge of it. Okay, so where's the edge? Well, I'll tell you, the, for me, the edge is not some place that we go to when we die right. if we're good boys and girls. Right. The edge has to be a, a, a select idea that um, is not yet uh, – uh, we have not yet the formula for it. We may have somewhat of a formula, language, numbers, right. measurements, time, space. And if we could put them all together, perhaps add a new dimension or two mm -hmm. or 30, we might be able to get to a meaningful understanding, if not a full definition of the word soul. So we have to use it very much as Christian theology talks about the Holy Spirit. Go on. Um, that it is something that is there, but not understandable uh, in, in, in terms of uh, a thing. Mm -hmm. It's an idea and not, not, uh, ma not matter. Right. And, and certainly... You know, very often we we follow rest of culture, very often thinking from the Hellenistic perspective of body and soul being these two dichotomous places of being almost. Yes. But, but you're saying this is more than just individual being, that this is something connected to something larger perhaps? Yes. In Noah, in our uh, Bible, Rabbi Neil, we talk about soul being that um, given to the men. And not the women. Right. Uh, so we've eliminated animals, but we've eliminated 50% of us in the, in the whole idea of soul. So it's a restricted definition. We are not capable of defining that which is not capable of being defined at the moment. So you, you lead very nicely, I think, onto 
a development of this question, which is very often um, when we talk about soul, um, we talk about this, you know, this, this thing that goes somewhere else, which you've already said quite clearly is, is not how you understand soul. But you mentioned animals, and that's a very important extra element for me. One of the elements of Jewish tradition that I struggle with, that I, I, I um, find great difficulty with, is this uh, traditional Jewish belief that, um, that we have a different kind of soul to the animals. That um, we follow either our Yitzhah Hatov or our Yitzhah Hara, our good or our more animal instinct, whereas all animals only have their own animal instincts, so they don't have free will because they don't make choices and so on. So I, I'm wondering, following on from that, which I find very difficult, I'm wondering your understanding of soul seems to transcend humanity. And would I be right in saying that you would therefore say that animals, li all living things, would have access to soul in the same way? Or, or, or is it different for different levels of creation almost? Well, um, I, I really think that we may not have souls. Okay. So if we don't have souls, we are perhaps like animals who don't have souls. But animals have something which we call beyond the instinct. Mm -hmm. You walk into my house mm -hmm. and you try to attack me, my dog will nip at you right. and will bite you. And what is that which teaches the dog that it needs to protect me? Right. Um, it's more than just uh, comfort and knowledge. What am I giving to the dog that enables it to understand something which I don't think dogs understand. I mean, the cynical response would be you, n you never bite the hand that feeds or make sure that nobody else attacks the hand that feeds. But I, I, I totally understand in terms of, you know, being a dog owner myself, um, I totally understand the idea that how do any animals, how do they know immediately to walk? How do they know to do these extraordinary things from, from birth? There seems to be something... But I, I think I, I want to push a little because if you're talking about soul not being in the, the narrow sense, but soul being that which has always been, then doesn't all life have potential to tap into that? Isn't, isn't there an ingredient of that in, in everything? It will potentially use all life to tap into, but only those who understand it will have any meaning from it. So is it conscious then? I don't even understand uh, consciousness. I get a little closer to the edge of consciousness than I do of soul. But I still don't. Uh, consciousness is something out there, or imagination, or right. awareness, or whatever term you want to use. And I was intrigued by the way that you said um, that that these ingredients were always there, are always here, and will always be here. And that immediately rings to me of the Hebrew tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God, which um, when God speaks to Moses on uh, at the burning bush, God says, I shall be as I shall be. God is a verb, not as a noun. And, and I, I dare to ask you, um, this is, was, and will be of the makeup of the universe— are you basically talking about God without calling it God? 
I've been accused of that. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I'm doing that now. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I get so um, involved in the in the question of what does the language mean Mm. that I lose the feeling of communication. Uh, I look at you and I see a a rather handsome man. That's not enough. What I feel is I wish I were that handsome. (laughs) And so that is beyond language. That is something that uh, may be the total sum that I've learned from language, Mm. but it goes beyond language. It's it's what I call an emotional response. And that gives us some terrible things as well as pleasurable things. This sick person who killed the the kids Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. Texas uh, had things in his understanding that came from language but may very well have gone beyond uh, definition. And the schizophrenic uh, sometimes does things which go beyond our understanding. So let's use that to pause for a moment. And I think when we come back from our break, I'd love to continue discussing the emotional and the rational, especially when it comes to soul and and being itself. So we'll take a a quick pause. You're listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich. And my guest this evening is Rabbi Ben Morrow. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Uh, with me this evening, Rabbi Ben Morrow, former rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom, who's returned to the show. We've been having an extraordinary conversation about soul and the, the difference between the emotional and the, the rational. And, and we just before our break took that, um, took that journey into whether the emotional response can be dangerous as well as rewarding because we can be limited by the rational and the emotional can add to it and yet at the same time there's a concern that emotional takes us places where rational would not go so i guess for me this question of soul especially talking with you since very often when we talk it's a very rational based conversation um, and we ground it in either text or in the the rational of of society itself where do we find the balance between emotional and rational especially when we're talking about something like soul which it seemed like you were saying earlier totally transcends the rational so I, wh- how do we find that balance well Let's look at Jacob and Esau, Mm -hmm. the search for something beyond the rational was in the pool of the the heel, which is another way of saying soul. So what made this child, unborn, struggle so much to grab and get possession of something that he felt didn't belong to him that he wanted? So what you're saying, this is extraordinary reading of a text. You're saying when in the, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when these two brothers are struggling in the womb and Esau comes out first and Jacob, who's, you know, Hebrew name Yaakov, is holding on to the heel, the ekev of Esau. You're saying this is reaching for the soul? Yes. 
Well, it's reaching for that which goes beyond his rationalization. So, But isn't, see, there's, that seems initially like an incredibly positive thing to say that we, that we can all reach out even in times when we wouldn't normally reach out. And yet Jacob is the trickster who ends up supplanting his brother by sort of grabbing hold of that which isn't his. So is this a good thing then to reach out beyond the rational? Well, uh, Rabbi Neil, look at who reaches out. Mozart reached out to grab the symphony. And all of our great artists do not know what the result will be. They have this motivation to pursue a basic concept which turns out to be this beautiful, magnificent newness. But if, if I see Mozart different to Jacob in that Jacob is reaching out almost to pull his brother back in, isn't he? To, to limit his brother. Whereas Mozart or whoever, whichever artist, aren't they just reaching out with something larger than themselves? Well, who was that fellow who tried to grab Mozart's work and use it as his own? I guess. Okay. So then is, is inspiration and reaching beyond, is that a balance then between, between transcending ourselves and between limiting others? I, I think it is. I'm not sure the word balance because that seems to allow for equality. Right. But there is a balance there. Uh, and if you put enough weight on one side of the scale, it'll, it'll move. And that's the, it's the movement, right. I think, that works toward it. And uh, I think the older you get, the more involved you may become with this search. Right. But unfortunately for me, that hasn't happened. And I have a long life to, to think about. <laughs> and uh, many of us become intrigued with what might be, mm -hmm. but we really don't think it's that vital to us at the moment. I want to live whatever life I have right. left, according to the Adams, right. um, without hurting anyone, without uh, needing to be a, a new achiever, right. and, and, and having a sense of enjoyment both in, in uh, learning, getting new knowledge, and having new e emotions. Uh, that's good. That's fine. And I'm comfortable with that. But it's not, it's not breaking space or right. doing the writing a novel. Okay. So with age, we understand the enormity of trying to reach definitions for soul and spirit and God. And so we, we sometimes play, play games right. and, and, or use mythology and create kingdoms or queendoms. Right. Uh, and it satisfies us. I, I, I'm, I'm challenged by what you're saying simply because I'm not sure the search needs to have an end. And, and it sounds like you're saying, you know, yes, you're not writing a novel right now. But actually, of all, all the people I know, you're one who searches more than most. 
it reminds me of that Kafka passage where he says, I gave orders for my horse to be brought from the stable and the servant asked me, where am I going? And I said, away from here, away from here, always away from here. And the servant boy says, oh, so you know your destination? He says, yes, didn't I tell you? My destination is away from here. Isn't that the soul searching, basically? Because it's it's a good analogy. And and the and the kicker at the end of the story is when the when the stable boy says, you know, you have no provisions with you, and and the response is, I need no provisions because I I will die on the journey, basically. So so is to come back to this idea of, of soul searching itself. I mean, the name of the show, after all. And ironically, in the year we've been doing this show, I don't think I've ever actually discussed soul searching and what it is with any guest, in fact. So is is soul searching a lifelong quest? Is there a point to this search? Is, is it just the search itself that is the point? What is it to you? It's what follows after being nourished and getting rid of uh, fear and being comfortable enough to be in a thinking position based on all the tools you might have to become bored. It's in the boredom that we look for uh, challenging the edges. Is it boredom or is it not? I mean, what you're describing to me sounds totally liberating as opposed to boring. Being nourished, being rid of fear, being in a position of thought. Isn't that, isn't that having, for example, lived a a good life being in the position to be able to say, now I can devote my life to the greater search for meaning or soul? Well, it's, it is very liberating. And as such, what, as such, one could argue that your point is taken. But I think it's more than liberating. It's a preparation. It's a, it's a, it's a way, a methodology that allows us to take another step. Hmm. And uh, that step may be nothing. I mean, surfboarding at 80 might be what we're looking for and uh, working up to the edge. But I think for many people who have the ability or the capacity to think beyond ordinary, uh, the ordinary, it's, it's, a, it's where we go. You you challenge me, probably without realizing, in terms of because I am an active member of clergy and am therefore in some sense responsible for the religious development of the members of my community, these steps that you say of being nourished, of being rid of fear and being in a thinking position, and I wonder, should that be the role of religion? Should Should religious communities be in a place where we help our members be nourished, be rid of fear, and be in a position where they can think so that they can then do their own soul-searching. Yes. In which case, how do we do that? I mean, I appreciate we've only got five minutes left, but as someone who has served in a pulpit and so on, how, do, how could religious communities, do you think, help people be nourished? And, and I'm aware that, of course, nourishment shouldn't just come from a faith community it should be a larger thing so so how do we help people at least on their journey if they are going to be nourished rid of fear 
and in a position of thought. How, how can organized religion do that? Well, maybe it was easier for me uh, because I grew up during the Depression and had re- headed right into World War II. So we had a double crisis, uh, one could say, mm-hmm. uh, in the 30s. But taking one step, I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a very religious leader. Mm-hmm. And the uh, National Recovery Act in workmen's compensation and Social Security, he certainly taught us and enabled us to have those things which nourish us and protect us and actually remove us from the fear of whatever. And so his religion, Mm. if we can say it as a religion, was contractual uh, and not spiritual. But it was very important. And so we've had figures like this. Uh, Maimonides, Sister Teresa, people who have uh, taken the step that has enabled us to uh, move a little bit. So I guess probably last question. You, You say it's contractual. You know, this relationship that they had was contractual but not spiritual. But shouldn't all spiritual relationship be contractual? Otherwise, isn't it just receiving selfishly or giving endlessly? Wow. <laughs> In two minutes only. That's, that's pretty challenging. I would say it would be wonderful if that was the case. Mm. But I think it has to come from uh, knowledge. I right. think that... This kind of satisfaction is um, one that you have to learn to accept and to and to uh, move forward with. It's not a a nurturing moment that disappears. You don't have it now and then lose it. Mm-hmm. It, it. It becomes part of your very psyche, and I think it is a brain thing, as a, a in a intellectual sense as a pre- opposed to a who as I call it a whiff right. in an emotional sense uh, it's, a, it's very difficult to determine the difference between the two but I think the coming back to what you were saying earlier the if the contractual is only from education knowledge as you say yeah. from knowledge that that immediately goes into the rational but misses that important element you were talking about before of the emotional, yes. doesn't it? But I yeah. guess the challenge coming back to what you were saying earlier is is the risk of the emotional going the wrong way or, or going into something unhealthy. Well, I think we need to define emotional uh, as being one of two kinds of experiences. And one is the physical. Right. And the other is that which goes somewhat beyond the physical. And it's in that area of the emotional that I would look to, if there is, look to a soul. And I'm sorry to be protective about my thoughts, but I don't know how else to keep them from drifting into the area that I really don't understand. Well, I, think, I don't think you've been protective at all this evening. I think you have been wonderfully open, and I have, 
I've so much appreciated our conversation. As always, when we speak, I think you have been illuminating and have challenged me and um, <laughs> hopefully and those who are listening to to really contemplate what is soul searching and to hear about your journey of soul searching. So may I say one quick thing? It's going to be super quick. Look at the temple uh, site and listen to his sermon last Friday night. Thank Rabbi Neil's sermon. It's fantastic. Thank you. I bless you for that. Um, Rabbi Ben, thank you so much for your profound answers to today's questions. And I hope you can return again um, because I always enjoy our conversations. So you've been, you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. Mm-hmm.